Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Anybody seen any big legal news this week? (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Certainly, uh, certainly no shortage of things to talk about with regard to the big news of the day. Um, There, as, as everyone I'm sure has heard by now, the a draft of a legal opinion striking down Roe versus Wade um, was leaked to Politico. It has been effectively verified as legitimate by the court, though not as the final version of the opinion, though um, that is kind of the the thinking. Uh, this is uh, a, this is a case that everybody basically expected to come down to the last week of the term. It involves a Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. That was challenged. Um, The court, uh, according to this draft, the majority uh, headed by Justice Samuel Alito, not only upheld the law, went a step further and said that Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which formed the bedrock of abortion rights in this country, uh, were wrongly decided and are struck down. And we have a whole show about it. Amber, you want to tell yeah. the folks uh, what, we'll, what we'll be doing today? I think it's fair to say we all um, in not just the legal community, but I think the nation as a whole recognizes that this would be a, a seismic ruling. Um, and in addition, there's the leak aspect. So there's just a ton going on here. So we're going to spend the whole show today talking mm-hmm. all about it. Haley's going to set us up with what this means for uh, a abortion jurisprudence, and for women across the country, then Alex, you and I were able to have a really nice talk with an attorney, Catherine Colbert. She's the co-founder of the Center for Reproductive Rights. She also argued several abortion cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, including Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was the big case that upheld Roe in the past. Um, She also co-authored a recent book. It's called Controlling Women, What We Must Do Now to Save Reproductive Freedom. Never has a guest seemed more qualified to tell us what really is is at play here. So we have a really nice talk with her. And then because the leak itself is also really interesting in terms of what that means for the court that is usually very secret and very controlled, I'm going to break down some of the aspects of that part of it. And before we start the show in earnest here, um, I just did want to highlight, we're going to touch on some of this stuff as we unpack what happened uh, in this decision, um, but did just want to shout out and we'll give them, we'll, we'll name them all at the end of the show like we always do. I, I thought our team did an awesome job uh, covering this from all angles. There's a, there's a landing page for all this coverage on Law360 if you're interested in that. Um, covered so many angles, some of which we won't even get to uh, here on this show. Uh, the term is also talking about this wall to wall, as you can imagine. So there is no shortage of uh, really thought provoking stuff to read about this um, incredibly important uh, opinion. Um, so with that, yeah, the broader um, team did such a good job. Really, yeah. some great stuff out there. But so yeah. good, Haley, kick us off. We have so much to get through. Let's start with the basics of what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. So there's obviously a lot going on here. But let's first take a look at the legal landscape and what this really means for various state laws and litigation um, and, of course, women, all of that. Obviously, the the big question here and what I want to emphasize um, does overshadow 
everything else that we will be discussing is how this will affect women. The majority of American women of childbearing age actually live in states where their access to abortion will be at risk. So there are 64.4 million women between the ages of 15 and 44 in the U.S., and 52% of them live in states with laws already in place um, that would immediately block most abortions, or in states with other limits like six-week bans or 15-week bans. All told, abortion would likely be completely outlawed or otherwise restricted in 23 states. Yeah, that is a big proportion of women uh, almost immediately impacted here. So let's break down that a bit more. How would those immediate effects um, take hold? What, what's going on there? Sure. So a big, a really big thing here is are these uh, so-called trigger laws. And these are laws that have already been put in place precisely awaiting this moment. These laws were passed in 13 red states where lawmakers have long hoped that Roe versus Wade will be overturned, and they just really wanted to have a ban ready to go. So those are all in place. If it gets overturned, there they go. They'll take effect, um, or at least the process of, uh, of getting them into effect will begin in earnest. And it's also important to note that on top of those trigger laws, there are a number of other states who have restrictions in the works. Um, those states wouldn't be quite as quick um, on getting those limits in place, but they're certainly likely to do so eventually. What does it look like if this speak, if the Alito opinion is codified? What does it mean for the kind of the next phase of abortion litigation? The right has basically been trying to do this for since Roe, so for the last, you know, 50 years, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't imagine if they succeed that that sort of means there's no more abortion litigation to be had. It's just like the scope just kind of narrows a bit or widens, depending on your perspective, I suppose, on what you'll be arguing over. So what might abortion litigation look like if this takes effect? Yeah. So like you said, it, it absolutely will not be dying down by any means. Everyone's likely to keep fighting over this um, and fighting over a whole bunch of different things like state constitutions, interstate travel, mailed abortion pills, um, and even contraception. The reversal of Roe would really just shift those battles to the state level. So specifically getting trigger laws into effect or reviving old abortion restrictions, that obviously will be kicking off a lot of litigation. Um, attorneys general will be required to provide statements on why their trigger laws can take effect. Um, and many conservative states' attorneys general will be revisiting Supreme Court decisions invoking Roe in imposing injunctions on their laws. So basically, mm -hmm. we're going to see a lot of AGs in pro-life states bringing the issue back to court. Yeah. You see this move in waves basically since Roe, because Roe obviously, like, establishes a constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion. Then Casey affirms that, but also allows states to impose, you know, restrictions that they, that, that they think are reasonable and that then that births a whole new sort of phase of litigation. Now, if it's, in, if it's struck down entirely, then you're talking about these things that you're saying about like traveling to another state to get an abortion getting an abortion in the mail, uh, using contraception, does that count as abortions? You can see how 
just sort of like the definitions shift a little bit, the scope shifts a little bit. I that 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 definitely makes sense. Yeah, Haley, what about in blue states? Would they have anything to do here? Or are we truly just talking about the universe of Republican-leaning states that are going to be spurred into action? Blue states will be will be getting into it as well. Um, so states that support the right to abortion are likely to scramble to bolster those protections. Michigan is actually a great example. Just last month, the state's governor asked the Michigan Supreme Court to find that the state's constitution protects abortion rights. And that's part of an effort to block a 1931 law in the state that criminalized abortion. So what about the laws themselves that we're talking about? Because as Alex said, you know, post Casey, you had this environment where it was a lot of restrictions, but obviously not outright bans. Are the laws themselves going to change in places that want to have further restriction? Are they just going to say, hey, we used to say you had to do X, Y and Z. Now you just can't get an abortion. Yeah, that's that's a really big factor, I think. Um, a lot of these restrictions that we've seen are clearly just trying to make it, you know, a little bit more difficult or add some extra steps for accessing an abortion. Um, and states are likely to look at that in light of this and say, well, why even bother with that if we can just ban it altogether? Uh, Columbia Law School professor Carol Sanger, who's an expert on reproductive rights, put it best, quote, why have a mandatory ultrasound when you can just get rid of the whole thing? I really like the way you started this discussion here about like telling, giving us a sense of the proportion of women of childbearing age who live in places where um, the curtain's going to fall down pretty hard, pretty fast here if this ruling takes effect. There are a lot of states, though, that do have abortion protections, some of them spelled out in their constitutions, right? Yeah. The Supreme Courts of at least 11 states have actually held that their state constitutions do protect abortion rights. Um, and actually, some of those are states you wouldn't expect, like Arizona, Alaska, and Florida. Other states, like I mentioned uh, with Michigan, are working on solidifying their protections. Um, and while abortion advocates are obviously not happy about this, and we, you know, get more into this with our interview today, they are saying that state court may be a better place for their fights right now. There's a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration really stacked the federal courts with more than 200 judges, many of whom are anti-abortion. So they're saying, you know, I, we'd rather fight this fight in state courts anyway right now. So often when we talk about contentious things going on in courts, there is a parallel track that could be taken, and that's going through the legislature. What could Congress do before even this ruling is potentially made official? Um, are we seeing any movement there? We are. Uh, Senate Democrats have pledged to codify Roe's abortion protections, but honestly, they're not likely to pull it off. They actually tried to do this a few months ago with what's called the Women's Health Protection Act, and that would guarantee abortion protections nationwide and prohibit state laws restricting access. Um, but that measure failed to move forward in the Senate predictably, and that's mostly thanks to the Senate Republicans who didn't want to support it. And in the wake of this week's leak, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said another vote should take place on that bill even if it's just to get senators on the record. Uh, here's what he said, quote, It's a different world now. The tectonic plates of our politics on women's choice and on rights in general are changing. 
every senator now under the real glare of Roe versus Wade being repealed by the court is going to have to show which side they're on. The Supreme Court's leaked decision to strike down Roe v. Wade would eliminate access to abortion in much of the country as individual states take back control over reproductive rights. But the decision also cuts to the core of constitutional privacy, with implications for birth control, gay rights, or any accommodation not specifically mentioned in the U.S. Constitution. Here to break this down with us is Catherine Colbert, a reproductive rights attorney who argued before the high court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the case that affirmed Roe versus Wade and set the stage for a generation of legal battles over abortion. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, we're here to draw on your expertise. As I just said, you argued in Casey, and I have seen talks you've given elsewhere where you discussed how close Roe came to being struck down in the context of that case. Talk us through that a little bit. And also, just generally, I would welcome your thoughts about how you felt when news of this leaked opinion broke. So let me uh, tell you a little bit about Casey first. Uh, It was a case in 1992 that challenged uh, restrictions on abortion from Pennsylvania. And right after uh, Justice Thomas was confirmed to the court, we believe that there were five votes on the court to overturn Roe. Now, I say all the time, winning a case in the Supreme Court is a lot like Sesame Street. Why? Mm Because you've got to learn to count. And there's only one number that matters. And that number is five. Yeah. Uh, So in 1992, we thought there were five votes to overrule Roe. And in fact, we were correct uh, because Following my oral argument, the justices voted, and there were five votes to overturn Roe. Chief Justice Rehnquist drafted an opinion doing so, uh, but uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy changed his mind and joined uh, Justice O'Connor and Justice Souter upholding the right to choose abortion, requiring states uh, to permit procedures uh, up until viability. And while the court gave greater latitude of states to restrict abortion that over the years has had a devastating impact on some women, and we can talk more about that, uh, the hallmark of the Casey case was that Roe was reaffirmed and the court basically set out a standard for what's called stare decisis, Mm -hmm. which said, even if you disagreed with the original opinion, you had to reaffirm it because otherwise the uh, court would be perceived in the public of changing its minds on things willy-nilly based on the political views of individual justices. So courts are obligated to reaffirm existing case law unless there's been a change in the law or a change in the underlying facts. And in the case of abortion, because millions of women relied upon this decision to order their life, it was even more important uh, to reaffirm it. In this instance, stare decisis is really the key here to talking about the current development. Obviously, if the leaked document becomes the final ruling, the idea of stare decisis is a little bit out the window here. And that has some implications beyond just abortion. Can you explain a little bit why this could have impacts on marriage, civil rights, 
and other things that sort of draw from the same pool of precedent? So there's a couple of things I want to start with. Um, and, and that is Justice Alito's draft opinion reads more like a political document than it does a legal one. And the reason I say that is twofold. One is it uses the language of the anti-abortion movement almost exclusively. Uh, But more importantly, it never addresses what happens to women when you permit states to ban abortion. And the effect of his ruling, by giving this back to the states, is that about half of the states in this country will ban abortion in all circumstances in most instances, maybe exceptions for the life of the mother, but maybe not. The reality is, is abortion will not be available in about half of the states from Georgia all the way west to Texas, from the Canadian border, you know, around North Dakota and and Idaho, all the way south to the Mexican border uh, through Oklahoma. Uh, So the states along the southern end of this country and the mountain states Abortion will be unavailable, and that means women will have to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles to obtain a medical service that has been available for their entire lifetimes. Amber, I'm I'm not going to judge how old you are, but I can tell you I'm 70 years old, and I went to college when abortion was legalized in New York State that year, 1970. Uh, And it has been available for women across the country ever since. Generations have depended on ordering their lives uh, based on their view that they could decide who they have children with, when they have children, how they have children, uh, a whole panoply of decisions that for most families are the most important decisions in their lives. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've lived exclusively in a world where this was a protected constitutional right. So it's very interesting to see how Alito attempts to dismantle that. Can you talk more about the right of privacy and and where we stand if this does, in fact, become the official ruling? Right. So um, let me emphasize I can't say it will become the official ruling, but my guess is it will. Right. Uh, right. And why do I say that? Because there are five votes there. If Chief Justice Roberts was successful in changing the mind of any of those five, he would have been writing the opinion. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mm -hmm. so it's clear that uh, this coalition of five justices will, in my view, stay firm. A couple of things. First, uh, Justice Alito says that abortion can't be a protected constitutional right because the word abortion is not in the Constitution. Well, that's true, but neither is contraception, neither is gay marriage, neither is... Or women. Or women, (laughs) exactly. I mean, women at the time that the Constitution was adopted had no rights. They belonged to their husbands. Uh, They couldn't vote. They couldn't own property. So, yeah, women didn't uh, weren't part of the panoply uh, and vision of the initial Constitution. Uh, and certainly, even with the adoption of the 14th Amendment, uh, women were, were never granted equality as we know it today. Um, so uh, that's a, it's a weird argument, frankly. I, I just don't think it works. You know, guns aren't in the Constitution either, and uh, that doesn't seem to bother them giving uh, rights to individuals to carry guns. So I think this this really speaks more to an excuse. But more importantly, what he says is, 
even if the liberty interest and the equality interest in the 14th Amendment covered some rights, uh, they have to be rights that don't have a long, that that have been a part of our nation's history and traditions. Mm -hmm. And most of the rights that have been granted in recent years, the right to choose abortion, the right to use contraception, the right to marry somebody regardless of their race or their gender, have had a long history of discrimination against them. Uh, state legislatures have passed laws that uh, make it difficult to exercise any of the rights. The whole point of the Constitution was to say these things are so fundamental and so important that they overcome a history of discrimination by the states. So it's a circular argument that doesn't work. And then lastly, and I think this goes to the whole notion of stare decisis, what the court is saying is if we disagree with the original decision, the way Justice Alito talks about it is Roe was egregious, they disagreed, then it's, it's our prerogative to change it. And stare decisis has never been used that way. What the court, you know, most people think of Casey as an abortion case, but Casey was really a, a treatise on stare decisis as well. And what the court said there, and what has been the traditional rule, is that courts can't change their views willy-nilly based on the politics of individual justices. We want a system in which the law is consistent, that the law uh, remains intact, that it just doesn't change from, from court to court. And unless there is a change in the underlying facts or a significant change in how uh, a, a framers have interpreted, or the justices have interpreted uh, this particular interest. Stare decisis requires them to reaffirm. And Roe versus Wade has been reaffirmed some 16, 18 times. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've argued two abortion cases in the Supreme Court. It was reaffirmed in both um, very strongly. This is not something that is up to question. And the important part here is it's not just Democratic justices that like Roe versus Wade. I mean, Roe versus Wade was decided seven to two by mm-hmm. a Republican court. Okay. Casey was decided by a Republican court, right? Remember the three justices, Souter, O'Connor, and Kennedy, all appointed by Republican administration. So this is not a party question. Yeah. It's not a it's a question of consistency and standards and a rule of law that has governed in this country. And when you forsake it, you risk everything imaginable uh, as we know it in the law. That's all very well observed. And I had, I had a follow-up question actually on the stare decisis question. Um, I don't know if you've, how obviously you're following the story closely. It's the hugest legal news uh, story in the country right now. But uh, I know Senator Susan Collins from Maine has like really expressed consternation about the comments that Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch gave in their confirmation hearings about, you know, there's always this, we talk on the show a lot about the, we've covered a a number of high court confirmations, including recently, about the careful way that justices answer questions when when they go before the Judiciary Committee and how both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch just kind of said as a statement of fact, you know, Roe is like double precedent and actually probably more than that when you consider all the affirmations that you just talked about. Do you have a strong view on the way 
that this decision, they are votes to strike down Roe, in this opinion, comports with what they told lawmakers? Or is that something you don't have a strong opinion on? Or I'm, I'm curious to know. I'm not surprised. I mean, the reality is, is uh, anybody who goes through the confirmation process is going to stand up and say that uh, yeah. they're going to look at the cases on a case-by-case basis and they're not going to make a determination uh, before joining the bench. And frankly, they're not limited uh, by doing so. So yes, it's disappointing that they uh, misled uh, members of the Senate. Uh, but if you looked at their history, if you looked at who was supporting their nominations, if you looked at the haste that uh, Senator McConnell took to get them confirmed, uh, we shouldn't be surprised. And frankly, for Kavanaugh in particular, where there's like really both with Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas, really serious allegations against them based on uh, sexual activity uh, against women, I, you know, I, nothing surprises me. So not to be too much of a doomsday person in this conversation, but obviously the right to reproductive choice is suffering a crushing blow with this ruling. But as we've discussed, the pullback on stare decisis could also implicate many other civil rights. Do you see that happening? Do you think we're entering a whole new era of American jurisprudence where we roll back things like Obergefell or even Loving? I think so, yes. Um, and all you need to do is to look at where the right has been concentrating their attention in the culture wars in the last, uh, you know, two months. Uh, what are they doing? They're attacking trans kids. They're banning books. They're trying to limit the use of contraception. Uh, if they could, they would, you know, repeal gay marriage. Uh, it may take them a while to do that, but they're certainly trying to undermine gay marriage uh, by giving broader. Uh, exemptions to religious people to object uh, to gay marriage. So yes, we're seeing all of that. And the rationale that the court has used in this opinion, uh, when it becomes law, uh, can equally be used to take back constitutional rights that have guided the last several generations. And that would include the right to marry a person with whatever their race, whatever their gender, the right to uh, use contraception. You know, people are already in states saying contraception is just, some forms of contraception is just abortion. Um, mm -hmm. And they've been saying that for years. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if a number of states tried to define abortion to include the pill. It's weird though, because of course, even contraception is so widely used in this country. It's, it's hard for me to imagine that any of those laws could actually be enforced in the same way that the bans on abortion can be enforced. So obviously we could see a massive sea change there. We're going to have listeners listening to this, some of which agree with the direction of the court, but others who are quite concerned. What would you say to the people that are worried about this? Is there any glimmer of hope? What should people be doing next? Okay, so uh, there's two things we need to do. Uh, the most important thing is uh, we need to get active politically. Now, this issue breaks down in the states on red and blue lines. Those states that are controlled by the Republicans in the state legislatures and the gubernatorial seats will ban abortion. Those that are controlled by the Democrats will provide protections, and the purple states will do something in between. Okay, So the first thing you need to do 
if you care about these issues, is to get active politically. And that means keeping blue states blue, flipping purple states blue, uh, flipping red states blue. And that is hard work. Our opponents have been doing this for 50 years with great success. But it's been incremental success. So our efforts have to also be incremental. We can't expect to do it in one you know, primary election cycle. You got to vote every single election. That's twice a year, not just once or not just once every four years. And you got to work in campaigns to put champions of choice in office. As far as I'm concerned, I'd love to see, you know, uh, state legislatures become majority women uh, and majority women who believe in in reproductive choice. But uh, it means hard work. What can you do? You can make phone calls, you can text, you can write letters, you can Uh, write postcards, you can give to campaigns, Uh, all of the skills that lawyers have used to fight for rights in the courtroom should now be turned to fighting for rights in the legislatures. Quit hitting our heads against the marble staircase. Skip those court, you know, give up your your desire to be a great litigator. Uh, It's not going to happen when you have a court that is this hostile. Uh, So you got to get political. And the second thing you got to do Uh, in my view, is you have to protect the women who are in need of services. And that means providing funding for them to travel, giving them good information, helping them uh, get out of jail if these rogue prosecutors go after them for using medication abortion, helping them uh, do anything that is necessary to exercise their uh, freedoms in a way that uh, we should believe is protected by the Constitution. This is a tremendous, uh, tremendously important story, and we're very lucky to have someone with your uh, expertise to talk us through it. Catherine Colbert, thank you so much for joining Pro Se. Thank you so much. our final point of discussion today, I want to spend a few minutes on what is obviously not the most important part of what's happened this week, but Mm -hmm. it is shaping up to be everyone's favorite Agatha Christie book. Um, I think the working title for this is The Mystery on One First Street, but it's also known as The Game of Who Leaked the Draft Opinion. So what I want to get into here is not as much just the guessing game, because no one really knows right now, but a little bit more about the leak itself. Because conservatives say it was leaked from the liberals. Liberals say it was a leak from the conservatives. A bunch of people have speculated about how it will impact a final ruling here. Some say it'll entrench the current vote. Other people argue, no, it's meant to try to dissuade someone from staying um, in that current majority block. It's really hard to say what will happen. But it's a mess. So I did want to tick through some big questions that are stemming from that leak. Where do we even start with this? <laughs> this is it's just, well, I, it's it's just it's just like one of the most DC stories ever because like you got this hugely important piece of case law that if genuine and we it, we we know it's genuine now the court set, right. said as much and then and I think that both we on this show and at Law Three Hundred and Sixty have done an amazing job covering it on the merits but then of course like this allows this whole other chattering class to like kind of you know dip into the parlor game of like, who did this? And won't somebody think of the norms? Won't somebody <laughs> think of 
the courtesies, gonna, the ethics, okay. where are they? I'm going to try to keep us to a little a little <laughs> one step away from that parlor no, game. No, we're going to we're going to do this. that now. I'm saying, but some people only <laughs> some people only did that. Some people speculate. only did that. <laughs> I would like to say though, do you guys want to go in on my big idea with me which is um a custom version of Clue, but it's just about who leaked the document. So it's like um Briar in the library with an iPad or it's like I love a it. clerk for Alito's office in the conservatory with an iPhone. So that's my <laughs> yeah. idea. Oh man, that is you're I really onto it. something. Can we <laughs> file an application for copyright protection right now? Our old friend the uh Supreme Court cafeteria would almost certainly oh, make Oh, of uh, course, has to be included. Make an yeah, appearance. I love that. Yes. So, okay, I did want to start with clearing up one point that I've seen over and over that's a little bit confusing for people, and that's that the leak is unprecedented. Um the reporting around this, uh, particularly the leak part, which is far less important than the merits of the potential ruling, has been a little breathless. Um, I don't want to downplay that the leak's remarkable and it's really unusual, but I think it's worth pointing out to people that the Supreme Court has had leaks before. Um, there is one media law professor, Jonathan Peters. He had a really great thread on Twitter on this exact point. Over the Supreme Court's history, there have been several instances of leaks but perhaps not as dramatic as a full draft opinion like we have here. So here's a couple of highlights. This is not exhaustive, but just a few key points. In the 1850s, the New York Tribune reported the outcome of several cases before the official opinion was handed down. The paper also published a running account of the deliberations in Dred Scott. So that's pretty interesting, I think. Wow. More recently, there were leaks published in the New York Times in 1968 that was sourced from a clerk who shared details of Justice Fortas's activities supporting the Vietnam War. And a wave of leaks also happened in the 70s, including, and I think this is pretty interesting in, in the context of what we're talking about, the Washington Post published a memo from Justice Douglas about the impending Roe versus Wade decision before that had officially been issued. Oh. Those leaks okay. were, however, a little different from what we're talking about here. They were centered on excerpts or... Um, just indicated which way the court was leaning or went into some of the deliberations that are usually secret. Uh, that is not what's happened here. We have a full draft opinion. So if you're going to call anything un unprecedented in this story about the leak, it is the fact that it is the full draft. Yeah, uh, that's. Uh, I, I would recommend everybody check out that thread. Honestly, this this professor, Peters, uh, got it up so... He, he got that thread posted so quickly and so thoroughly I joked to Amber that I thought he might be in on it. I don't know what his connections are to the court. <laughs> We've cracked the case, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm wildly speculating, but uh, quite informative. So I know that the court has already taken or is going to be taking some kind of remedial action here. Uh, what can you tell us about that just in terms of yeah. trying to stem future leaks and stuff? There will be an investigation. So Chief Justice Roberts said this. This was a singular and egregious breach of that trust that is afforded to the court and the community of public servants who work here. I've directed the marshal of the court to launch an investigation into the source of the leak. So taking it pretty seriously. And for me, when I read that statement, I was immediately struck with, I don't know anything about the marshal of the Supreme Court. And I don't know if you guys do. <laughs> no. But Law 360 generally had that question. And so we have reporting on that. The marshal is um, Colonel Gail A. Curley. She's a career military attorney and only the second woman to hold the post. So I think that's pretty interesting. Curly was appointed to the courts as the court's 11th marshal in May of 2021. 
You may know the court martial for the only thing I knew that they did, which was saying oye, oye, oye at the start of arguments to get everybody <laughs> to get the attention and kick things off. But they do a lot more than that. Um, she manages the court security, the facilities, a bunch of contracts. She's in charge of 260 employees, and that includes the Supreme Court police force. So if you're going to task somebody with an investigation, this is the right person. Um, mm-hmm. Before taking on this martial role, Curly in particular has a really interesting pedigree here. She was chief of the National Security Law Division in the U.S. Army's Office of the Judge Advocate General. She supervised a whole team of military attorneys there and gave Army leadership advice on national security law. So this is um, not really a person to be messed with. I think she will get to the bottom of it. Well, assuming she's not the one who leaked it. <laughs> you know, it I could mean, be a curveball. You make a good point she's, there. Sounds like she's got a lot of <laughs> access here. But let's, let's say it's not, it's not her. Who will her suspects be? Well, this is where my clue game is going to work out great because it's a pretty limited universe of who it could be. So the card, the deck is really easy to construct here. Um, it's the justices themselves, several dozen clerks who could access draft opinions and a variety of support staff in the courthouse who can also view these documents. So we're not talking about thousands of people. Um, yeah. I would like to note, though, many people have wondered, like, well, what happens if they do find who did this? And that's a little murky. If the suspect is found, it's pretty unclear what would happen next. If it turns out it was a clerk, they are in fact bound by a code of conduct that very heavily emphasizes confidentiality at the court. Repercussions for a clerk as a source of the leak are mostly professional. I mean, as everyone I think knows, it's very hard to get a high court clerkship. It sets you up for a, a future career as essentially a luminary in the law. I mean, really yeah. impressive people have started. That it's a way. golden ticket. Absolutely. And so mm-hmm. you have to wonder, would someone put that on the line to leak this? So just a, something to ponder there. There's no specific statute that actually criminalizes leaking a draft opinion. So it's unlikely no matter who it is that we would see criminal charges. But I think the thing we can pretty much see coming is that the court is probably going to take a much closer look at the rules they have in place and the processes they have in place around this stuff and probably make access to draft opinions and other sensitive documents a lot more restricted. Yes. And I hope that one of the reforms is if you're going to leak it, leak it to Law 360, not Politico. Thank you. Should be the rule. Absolutely. That's that's just a personal um, thing. Um, So... I kind of joked about it at the top of this segment. We've got to talk about the norms. Uh, won't somebody think of the norms? <laughs> uh, it is. Thank I you, mean, Alex. just just because you know the Supreme Court is like mostly self-governing, they kind of get by on so. their yeah on their like professional etiquette and treatment of each other. And like you know, this is if. On those terms, this could be seen as like a huge betrayal of that covenant. So beyond beyond preventing future leaks, what are some other kind of lasting impacts for the, for the institution of the court? I think it's really good that you pointed out that a lot of this is just norms and etiquette. I mean, there's been a push in other contexts, even before the leak, that there should be clearer ethics rules to govern the justices themselves and the people that work at the Supreme Court, which right now there are not. So that's come up in several contexts. But what we are getting down to at the bottom of the story is essentially it's about reputation. So 
regardless of where this leak came from, conservative, liberal, you know, it doesn't really matter. In that, overall, it makes people in America think the justices are just politicians in robes, which is a quote one of our (laughs) sources said um, in one of our stories, which I thought was a really nice, succinct way to put it. The leaked draft opinion does reveal sort of the partisan nature of some of these deliberations and who lines up where. And um, we pointed out in our talk with um, Carolyn earlier that some of the current justices, when they were going through their confirmation process, had said that they very strongly believe in stare decisis and the importance of precedent. And this maybe lays bare a different view on that that leads people to really question if if it's just another political branch of government. So that's one pretty bad outcome to come out of this, that it weakens the institution in that way. Beyond just that reputational damage, though, it could also just hurt the actual activities at the court and the deliberations of the justices. There's been some speculation that justices may shy away from certain debates at, say, conferences, which are normally secret. But if they're worried about leaks, they might not say some of the things they're thinking. Mm -hmm. And that could be a bad thing for consensus building. It could be a bad thing ultimately just for democracy. I mean, the way it's supposed to work is that they can speak freely, try to sway each other in certain instances. A University of California, Irvine School of Law professor named Rick Hassan told Law360 this. This is such a profound breach of trust. No one will know who can be relied on. And remember, there are other big cases at the court on guns, on prayer in schools. They're all going to be thinking, what else can be leaked? The court can't function like this, and I just don't see how they move forward. So I don't know if I go as far as that professor, but you can see how the breaking of this trust could have significant ripple effects at the court for years to come. I hate to end on that sort of doomsday note, well, but it you know. has been a significant week at the court, everyone. Um, we, of course, will continue to follow the drama with the leak and to see if Alito's draft opinion does come out in final form in the coming months. So stay tuned for more here on Pro Se and with Law360. We have a slew of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Catherine Colbert, and a bunch of contributing reporters across our newsroom. Long list ahead, Jimmy Hoover, Chris Villani, Hannah Albarazzi, Dorothy Adkins, Andrew Strickler, Jeff Overly, Justin Wise, Jack Karp, and James Arkin. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. That definitely helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about the Supreme Court leak and the draft opinion, we've got a ton of stories on it. So head on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you next week.